So folks, we start in the first of our series, Tough Questions, What Concerns You About Christianity? That's what this uh, series is about. And Craig has put there on the flyer, let's talk. And it might not seem like we're having a dialogue with me standing up at the front here preaching, but I'd like to you to see it as a, as a primer for dialogue, a primer for, for, for talking to people, go away and talk about what you've heard, um, chat to one another. Um, and also, if you continue to be unsatisfied with some of the answers that have been given, please feel free to chat to us. Um, the, that's what the communication card is about. Just write down on there. Um, and I'd like to have coffee with you to talk about this some more. Today we're going to be talking about how can a loving God send people to hell? That's today's uh, objection to the Christian faith. And I would just like to pray because uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians that in order to us, for us to grasp facts and truth about God's love, we need to be given power to do it. He says, I pray that you would be strengthened that you would receive power to understand the dimensions of God's love. So let's just ask him to do that. Father God, we recognize that these things are often hidden from us because we're so different to you. And we recognize that we need to be strengthened in our inner persons in order to grasp the dimensions of your love. And we pray that as we come to this subject this morning, that you would do just that for every one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we answer this question, we need to have a look at some of the Christian doctrines that give rise to it. And I've summed it up very briefly there. Final judgment is coming. So there is a doctrine of final judgment. And hell is horrific because some people after the final judgment will be consigned to hell. So there's the doctrine of hell. And then we come on to the question that we're looking at today, yet God is still loving. How can it be possible for him to still be loving in the light of the doctrines of final judgment and hell is horrific? So let's start off with that first, um, that first doctrine, the doctrine of final judgment. Christians believe, just to state it quite briefly, that a final judgment of both believers and unbelievers will happen. Every human that has ever lived will be resurrected from the dead, uh, from the dead to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And his final verdict regarding each person's eternal destiny will be heard. Christ's judgment of each person will be final. We call it the final judgment because it will be irreversible and will stand forever. So there's a concise statement of the doctrine of final judgment. But let's have a look because um, every belief that we have, we don't just pull it out of the air. We, we, we find it in Scripture. It's based on biblical evidence. So the event itself is... Uh, mentioned in scripture, the apostle John has a very vivid vision of the final judgment and he records it in his revelation in chapter 20 verses 11 to 15. I'll read it in case that's too small for you to see. Uh, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, 
anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, John wasn't the only apostle to mention the final judgment. When Paul was addressing Greek philosophers in Athens, he said, God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He'll do it by a man he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. How could there be a final judgment when everybody is raised from the dead to be judged if God had not raised Christ from the dead? And how could Christ have been raised from the dead if he hadn't been a perfect human being who had never committed any sins? In that sense, he was a righteous man. And then Paul also talks about it, talks about the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed in Romans 2, verse 5. And then there are just numerous other clear references to a coming day of judgment in the Bible. So there is evidence for the event itself, but now we need to flesh out the bones with some details. Does the Bible tell us anything, for example, about the time of the event? Well, if you go back to Revelations 20, that's the passage that we just looked at there and, and have a look before it, um, we're told that when Christ returns, he will bind Satan up and lock him away in a place called the Abyss. And then he will raise to life all Christians so that they can rule with him over the earth for a period of a thousand years. And this is normally referred to by Christians as the millennium. After the millennium, Satan will be released from his prison and that will enable him to lead a final rebellion against Christ and his followers. And God will consume the rebels with fire and he will throw Satan into a lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And once that has taken place, the final judgment will commence. So. It'll occur after the end of the millennium and after the rebellion that ends, that, that occurs at the end of the rebellion. Let's move on now to the, the nature. Let's try and unpack the nature of this judgment. First of all, um, who will the judge be? Paul talks, you can see it there, of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead. The Apostle Peter says that Jesus Christ is the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And this right to act as judge over the whole universe is something that the Father has given to the Son. We see it there in John 5, 26 and 27. The Father has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus is going to be the judge. But who is it that's going to be judged? I think we, most of us would understand that unbelievers will be judged. Paul addresses them in Romans 2, the letter that he's writing to the, to the church in Rome. But from the context, we can see that he's addressing non-believers here. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And in terms of what people will be judged on, they will be judged on their words and their deeds. How do we know this? Well, Jesus said, 
I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Quite sobering that, isn't it? And then in Ecclesiastes, we see God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. I think that's referring to secret deeds, things that are done in secret, but I think it's, it's inclusive of other secret things like our um, thoughts, uh, our motives, whether they are good or evil. So, unbelievers will be judged. But I think it's quite significant also to note that believers will be judged too. Whilst uh, he was addressing the Christians in Rome, Paul said, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us shall give account of himself to God. And that's not the only time that Paul mentions this when when he writes to the uh, Corinthian church. This is what he says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may, may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Just as a little aside, you'll notice that I'm not preaching from a particular um, passage today. That's because the way the Bible handles things like doctrines and beliefs is it comes up in lots of different places in the Bible. The Bible is not a book of systematic theology where you can go to a chapter and learn about the final judgment. You've got to go to lots of different places. So Christians are going to be, be judged, and that sounds pretty terrifying, doesn't it? But what I would like you to remember this morning is that the judgment of believers will never end in eternal condemnation. This is what Jesus said about it. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. What judgment is he talking about here? Passing from death to life or the opposite being true? So... The judgment that we will receive is not a judgment that has to do with consigning us to hell. That's not what we fear. And that's why Paul could write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the judgment of believers, what is it going to be then if it's not about um, consigning people to to hell in in terms of um, addressing their actions? Well, we find here in Revelation what it is. It will be to evaluate and to bestow a reward. Revelations 11:18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants. And then he goes on to explain who those servants are, the prophets and the saints. Maybe you feel like you're not a prophet or a saint, although you are a saint. <laughs> and those who fear God's name, If you're someone who fears God's name, there you are. Both small and great. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So, this is summarized as far as we got so far. With respect to the nature of the final judgment, um, Christ will be the judge. Both believers and unbelievers will be judged. The trial of unbelievers will result in punishment, whilst that of believers will result in rewards. The last comment I'd like to make about the nature of the judgment before we move on to to hell is that it is irreversible. The judgment is irreversible. Paul tells us that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God 
and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord. And so this idea of eternal destruction or eternal life means that the judgment is irreversible because how could it not be irreversible um, how, how could it not be irreversible if it's described as being eternal? It's going to go on forever and ever. A story that Jesus told. Let me read it to you. There was a rich man. He was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. We're not even told the name of the rich man, but we are told Lazarus's name, and he was suffering. He wasn't even given scraps from the rich man's table. And the, the terrible thing is that it was only the dogs who came to comfort him. His fellow human being didn't do it. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores but the rich man didn't come out and treat him. Could have afforded it, would have been no problem at all. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham. This is very significant what he, what he calls out. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and to cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you notice that he didn't say, Father Abraham, please forgive me for what I did, that I didn't comfort Lazarus? He doesn't say, please allow me to come out of this place. He's still in that mode of everybody must serve me. Send Lazarus. <laughs> Isn't that appalling? But Abraham said, child, there's no vindictiveness in this, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner had bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish and this is what I want to emphasize. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So it's irreversible. And I don't believe that, that the, the rich man would have wanted to go across anywhere. There's a sense in which the doors of hell are locked on the inside. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for our five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So it's irreversible. And now we've covered the doctrine of final judgment. The second doctrine that we need to visit um, before we answer that tough question, is the doctrine of hell. So we've looked at all of this so part of it. Final judgment is coming, the event. We've looked at the time, at the end of the millennium, after the, the final rebellion, the nature of it. Jesus Christ is the judge. Unbelievers will be judged and punished. Believers will be judged and rewarded. And the judgment is irreversible. And we've already started to get a sense of hell, haven't we, in that, in that story that Jesus told us about the rich man and Lazarus. And so there's a definition. Wade and Grudem, he's a theologian, defines hell as a place of eternal conscious punishment 
for the wicked. We've talked about the eternal nature of it. What about that phrase, conscious punishment? Well, we, we saw that it was a place of torment, didn't we? That's why um, the rich man was, was so unhappy. He was in a, in a place of torment. So that's why it's punishment. And the horrible thing is that it is a place of conscious punishment. It's not as though we're just going to be annihilated. It's not as though somehow the pain is going to be dulled. We are going to be conscious, if we go to hell, of what is going on. It is a place of conscious punishment. And that's made abundantly clear in that story. But it's not the only reference to, tell, to hell as a terrible place. It's described as punishment, eternal punishment. It's described as the eternal destruction. And I was just reflecting on that a little bit and thinking, you know, when something is destroyed, when a motor car, for example, is destroyed, if, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen them sometimes on the side of the road, you'll see the, the shell of a burnt out motor car. That motor car has been destroyed. And what is left is something that still reminds us that at one time it was a motor car that could drive around, that could be driven around. And I just think it's so horrible to think that, that one day human beings will be destroyed in such a way that they're no longer really human beings. They're just what's left of a human being after it's been destroyed. It's, it's just such an appalling thing to think about. And that's why Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can destroy the body, but be afraid of God who can destroy your soul in, in hell. And every person that you see, every person that's lived on the earth is not a destroyed human being yet. They still carry the image of God. It says in Genesis that you should never commit murder because every human being is created in the image of God. Even someone who doesn't believe in God still carries the image of God. Eternal destruction. Eternal exclusion from God's presence. We have no idea what that will be like because here on earth, we're not separated from God's presence even if we don't believe in him. We still know his presence. We still know his providence. We still know his goodness. Some of the pictures that, that are used, it's likened to a lake of fire. It's likened to a place of outer darkness. Bottomless pit, a place where the worms never die. Sounds horrendous. A place where fire will never be quenched. I think enough said. So now we come to the question, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? And this is an explosive question, and not least because the doctrine of hell is hard. And we can all think of people who don't believe. Perhaps it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend. And in many instances, we might know that the person in question, although they're not a believer, is actually a better person than us. You know, I, I, I am quite willing to admit that there are people who don't believe in God who are better men than me. And we just think, how can people like that be consigned to hell? This is what Grudem, Grudem says. He says it is hard, and it should be hard, for us to think of the doctrine of hell today. If our hearts are never moved with deep sorrow when we contemplate this doctrine, then there is a serious deficiency in our spiritual and emotional sensibilities. But here's another thing. God finds it hard. He says, I have no pleasure in the death 
of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Do you see where he gets his pleasure from? He gets his pleasure from wicked people turning away from their wickedness. And then he cries out to the people of Israel at the time. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? You don't have to die. You can come back. What about Jesus? He cries over Jerusalem, sitting up probably on the Mount of Olives where he has a good view of it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The Bible is a history of God trying to reestablish contact with mankind. To, to, to send prophets, to send people that, that, that mankind can relate to, speaking in a language that they can understand. He even sent his own son. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing? So this is a very valid question to be asking. It's a hard doctrine, very hard doctrine. But the way I would like to answer it now is to pose another question. And that is to ask, if you wouldn't want to send people to hell, what would you have God do instead? And before we evaluate some possible answers, let me tell you a story. A single mum lies dying of a terminal illness. She has an only child, a young daughter in her early teens and wants to make sure that the inheritance she leaves is used for the education, upkeep, and health care of her daughter. But there's a problem. The woman knows that her sister is greedy and will try to steal the inheritance. So she appoints the girl's cousin as a guardian, an older man, a good man, a man that she trusts, and she instructs him to manage the inheritance for the orphan's benefit. The woman dies, and sure enough, her sister makes a bid for the orphan's inheritance, but the man stands in her way. So the sister brings a trumped-up charge against the man, knowing that if he is imprisoned, she can do what she likes with the inheritance. It's maybe starting to ring some bells. The case is unlikely to stand up in a just court, and yet the man is compelled by circumstances to employ a private lawyer not knowing that the lawyer had formerly been a public prosecutor. And when he was a prosecutor, the lawyer had accepted a bribe to corrupt the course of justice in a particular case, something that happened in the past. The case was judged by a magistrate who was supposed to share in the bribe. And sure enough, the magistrate gave a corrupt ruling, expecting him to receive his share in the bribe, but the former prosecutor took all the money for himself. Now, the magistrate appointed to judge the man's case was the exact magistrate that had been swindled by the lawyer. I'm sure you can figure out how the case went. Although the man was innocent, he was sent away to prison. He's caught in the crossfire between the magistrate and the lawyer. The magistrate wanted to get his own back on the lawyer and he did it through the lawyer's client. And then during the course of several years in prison, the man's health is damaged by the appalling conditions and the brutal practices of the guards. His children grow up without him. His wife battles to provide as a single mum. What of the orphan? 
Her inheritance is squandered so that she has to be pulled out of a private secondary school prematurely. She doesn't even get her O-levels and to this day remains at home, effectively uneducated. So now we ask the question, what would you have God do? First of all, with the greedy sister, or the corrupt lawyer, or the vengeful magistrate. Let's consider some solutions. Solution number one, God should forgive. But what would the victims think about the quality of God's love if he forgave the guilty parties without getting them to put things right? You see, if you forgive an injustice without putting it right, it's the same as condoning that injustice. Okay, well be that as it may, let's suppose that both God and the innocent victims were prepared to forgive the guilty parties. In this case, let's say, take the sister. What would happen, for example, if the evil aunt was totally unrepentant? She could justify what she'd done. Fully justify it, she couldn't see anything wrong, she couldn't see what everybody else could see, that a tremendous injustice had been committed. Would it be possible for her to receive forgiveness if she didn't think that she needed it? And surely if she was unrepentant, then she would deserve punishment. And so in a way, she would be choosing that punishment rather than being sent to it. But even if she did repent and she was forgiven, justice would still need to be done, wouldn't it? And so maybe you'd be prepared to go to a second option. God should punish. Take the lawyer. Let's think of him for a moment. Suppose that you know that the lawyer is sorry for what he did and that he wants to make amends. You're a friend, perhaps, of the lawyer. You know that he's a good man. He does the best for his family. He's never cheated on his wife. He loves his kids. He plays with them. He provides for them. He even supports charities. In fact, he's actually a better person than you. And the reason why he took the bribe, and that was the only time that he took a bribe, was to pay for his third child's schooling. But nevertheless, there were these unintended consequences for innocent people. And remember, we haven't even talked about the people from the first case. And he agrees, yes, he should make up the injustice. Let me ask you a question. If you were gonna set some sort of punishment for him, let's say a prison sentence, how much time would you send him away for? Well, if you didn't know about the consequences to the man and his family and to the orphan, you would probably set maybe two years for accepting a bribe. But if you knew about what had happened to the man who went to prison and about his family and you knew about the orphan, then you would start to increase the length of the sentence. And even at that stage, you wouldn't have taken into account the original sin and the effect that it had on that first court case and the defendant involved there. So maybe you can see the problem. We are not in a position to balance the scales of justice because we just don't know enough. And you might agree with me, but perhaps you're secretly wondering, how could God punish that lawyer eternally for one sin that he'd committed? 
Well, all I would say to you is it's very easy for us, based on our limited knowledge, to think that God's justice is harsh and that his punishment doesn't fit the crime. But God sees everything. He knows everything. Don't you think that he is qualified to dispense justice? Don't you think that he can trace all the unintended injustices which result from a particular sin, things that we don't even know about? And sadly, the sin behind every sin is saying to God, go away and leave me alone. That is the sin behind every sin. It's saying, you've revealed yourself to me, you've shown me what the truth is, you've asked me to respond to it, and I'm saying, no, go away and leave me alone. I don't want you around. I don't want you telling me what's right and wrong. I can determine what is right and wrong for myself. It's right for me to accept this bribe because of my child. And if everyone is the, every one of us, of us has done this. And it is exactly this rebellion against God which has resulted in infinite chaos and suffering and injustice through an unlimited chain of endless unintended consequences. And if a created being chooses to live in rebellion against his maker and will never repent, how can God allow that person into his perfect heaven? Wouldn't the maker have the right to condemn him to an eternal separation from his presence? This is how C.S. Lewis put it. Sin is a person saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God's finally saying to the individual, you may have your wish. But maybe you're saying, well, you know, I want forgiveness um, and I want to put my sin right. I'm prepared to put my sin right. The problem is that the injustices committed will never be righted by the efforts of people like you and I. So solution one just isn't an option because it ignores justice Solution two isn't an option because it ignores forgiveness and in any case God will never be able to punish us enough for the un un unintended consequences of our sins. And so that leaves us with solution number three. God should both forgive and punish. Justice can only be satisfied by the death of a perfect human being. And God chose to punish his son, Jesus, in order to satisfy the requirement for justice. He did this so that he could freely offer you forgiveness for all your sins. All that is required is to receive this forgiveness, repentance, and faith. And God gives every human being time to repent. He could have banished every one of us from his presence the moment we rebelled against him. But the Lord is slow to fulfill his promise to return and judge as some count slowness. Is not slow, rather, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's given us a chance, more than ample chance. So I'd like to close with the words of C.S. Lewis. In the long run, the answer to all those that object to the doctrine of hell 
is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, moving over every, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he's done so on Calvary. Are you asking him to forgive them? They will not be forgiven. Are you asking him to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Let's just spend a moment um, in prayer. And having presented the, the, the gospel in this way, it would be sinful not to offer people the opportunity to respond to this amazing, amazing gift that is offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. You could never, ever pay off the debt that you owe. Only Jesus can pay that debt. And we know that he can pay that debt because he was a, a pure, sinless human being who never committed a sin. And so he's the one who can absorb your, your punishment. And the reason why we know that he is a pure, sinless human being is because he was raised from the dead. God could never have raised him from the dead if he hadn't been pure and sinless. And on the basis of that, we can be raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Don't leave it until it's too late. You don't want to end up being on the other side of the final judgment. And so, so I would just ask if there is anybody who would like to, to commit their lives to receive that gift, um, that you would do it now. And just as everybody has their eyes closed, just because this is not about everybody else, um, and you would like to receive that gift, just put up your hand and uh, I'll, I'll pray with you. And, um, and you can receive it right now. Is there anyone that would like to receive that gift of eternal life from, from God through Jesus Christ? Good. Let's, let's pray. And just pray along quietly in your own heart to receive that gift. Father God, thank you for punishing Jesus in my place. I turn away from my sin. I turn away from that sin behind the sin. Rebellion. Not wanting to do things your way. And I, I turn towards you. And I accept the gift, the free gift of eternal life through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for coming. Um, let's continue the, the dialogue. This was a very much a one-sided dialogue, but it's a primer. It's to get you started. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next few weeks. Thank you very much.